You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet. Coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 570 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, March 2nd, 2023. And in this episode, we've got a wide assortment of things to talk about, including dating that should ultimately lead to marriage, having 10 kids and paying no property taxes. Also, men checking out of the workforce drag queens kicking kids out of schools in Great Britain, and some gun control legislation that is being proposed and considered here in the state of Colorado where I live. Stay tuned because we're going to get to all of that and then some in this episode. But before we get started, I think I've decided that this is something I want to start each episode with. Before we get started on the talking about politics and social issues, I want to start each episode with a reading of scripture. And whether I stick to that, whether it turns out that uh, sometimes that doesn't work or it's not necessary, that remains to be seen. But at this moment, at this juncture, looking back on the 569 episodes that I have uploaded thus far, some of the recent ones where I've started with scripture reading and then others farther back that I've started that way, I think it does set the tone. It sets the tone for the rest of what follows, and it, in some sense, creates a kind of sobriety that is very special, and it's very important, and I don't want it to be all serious all the time, but then I also don't want us to see reading the scriptures alongside current events as being some kind of a buzzkill. Right, as if we're reading the, the current events items, and then we say, "Okay, now we're going to read scripture," and you feel jarred. You feel like you get a kind of whiplash, like what just happened? Right? I don't want that. So I want to start off by reading the scriptures, and then let's look at the current events items, and let's consider whether the reading of scripture is informing our views. Let's be intentional to make that the case. But let's consider whether that is happening. So where we left off here a couple of episodes ago, I read through chapters 7 through 12 of Exodus. And that's where I'm at. I'm in the book of Exodus. And so I'm going to read Exodus 13 through 14. And if that's not your cup of tea, carry on. (laughs) I am not actually recording this podcast. I haven't been 570 episodes in. I haven't been recording this podcast for as long as I have, and with as much depth of feeling and conviction as I have, because I am controlled by whether people are going to like it all the time. Do I want it to be an enjoyable experience? Yes. But more so, for those who are going to tune in, I want it to be something that's edifying and something that's challenging where we need to be challenged. It's encouraging where we need to be encouraged. God's word will not return void of power. So here we go. Starting from the top, Exodus 13, starting in verse one, Yahweh said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first 
to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand Yahweh brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when Yahweh brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to Yahweh. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what Yahweh did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of Yahweh may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, Yahweh has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep his statute at this appointed time from year to year. When Yahweh brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to Yahweh all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be Yahweh's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand Yahweh brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, Yahweh killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to Yahweh all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand Yahweh brought us out of Egypt. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And Yahweh went before them by day, in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihaharoth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? 
So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Haharoth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Yahweh will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Yahweh said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and Yahweh drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, Yahweh in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee. From before Israel, for Yahweh fights for them against the Egyptians. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course, and the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, Yahweh threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that Yahweh used against the Egyptians, so the people feared Yahweh, and they believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses." Amen. Amen. So what do we have here? Is this allegory? Did this really happen? You may be wondering to yourself, is this all just a psychological projection for primitive peoples who didn't know how to explain or express their emotions? Is this myth? 
Is this just making up a story because it conveys some complicated relationship that we're trying to project into the future? I'll tell you what I personally believe. I personally believe that every word of this actually happened exactly as it is written. I believe that we in our day are actually so blind that we think when we read about supernatural incursions in the history of mankind, in the history of the world, when we read about God suspending the laws which he himself has instituted and is still ruling and reigning over. He's not separated them from himself as though he can't and won't intervene to save his people or to get glory for himself or to make himself known. I believe that God suspends the natural laws when it pleases him and to the end of showing his holiness, his righteousness, his faithfulness. He will forever do that if it pleases him. In other words, in the absence of God saying he won't do a thing, he might, unless it's contrary to his character. But this is him showing his character. And if we say, well, then it was just man. It was just man who made up these stories, men who were ambitious or crazy or trying to be manipulative. I say we are projecting our present circumstances, our present experience backwards. I think there is a presentism and a naturalism, a scientism that we have got to shed and we've got to put on the back burner and we need to embrace Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and the book of Acts. We need to embrace the Old Testament and the New Testament over and above the biases that are modern education systems have indoctrinated us in. That is to say that we have all been indoctrinated. And when someone like me goes and reads a selection from Genesis, like the creation account, for instance, or this selection from Exodus of God protecting the children of Israel, delivering them from Pharaoh in such a way as to actually show his power, not only for Israel, but against Egypt to destroy Pharaoh and his armies in the sea. When I read something like this and I say, this is true, this actually happened. It's not just like some suppose a psychological projection that's useful for us coping with our primitive feelings. A lot of us bristle and say, ah, I can't believe that. I can't believe that. You expect me to believe that? Do you actually believe that? You are crazy. I'm not listening to you, but here's the thing. What if this is correct and what you believe is wrong? You might say, I'm trying to indoctrinate you. And I say, yes, yes, I am. And you should like that fact. You should be happy for that fact because you need better doctrine. And you've already been indoctrinated. So many of us just think that we have no doctrine if we have come up through the public education system if we listen to the mainstream media news, if we listen to mainstream politicians and authors, if essentially we are going with what is popular, what is popularly accepted in our culture, that that is not indoctrination. That's just normal. But I say, look around you. Increasingly, what is normal is very obviously insane 
and evil. And so maybe we should aim higher than normal. I think we should aim higher than just what is common, because what is common has been corrupted, and it is bad doctrine. It's false doctrine. What is false doctrine? That would be doctrine that is not true, that is going to keep you from understanding what is happening. And therefore, it's going to keep you from knowing the difference between good and evil. If you have bad doctrine, it's going to lead to bad outcomes. And by bad outcomes, I mean you're going to make bad decisions. You're going to make bad life choices, and you're going to have bad consequences, and you're going to suffer for it. And if you're wise, you're going to take my rebuke, which is a rebuke. It is. It's a corrective. Hey, stop that. That's wrong. You're going to take my rebuke, and you're going to heed it. If you're a fool, well, then carry on and don't pay any attention. Don't pay any mind. Carry on. Consequences will teach you sooner or later that this is correct. So my question, my challenge to you would be, would you rather consequences teach you in the long run, firsthand, that you would suffer from those consequences because you keep on, you keep on in a bad state, a bad state of mind, a bad state of unbelief, or would you rather heed the warning, listen to God's word, first and foremost, as the only infallible source for good doctrine, for right thinking, for right action, for justice, knowing what justice is. Justice is a thing, and we can know it by reading God's word, by seeking the Lord's face, by asking God for wisdom in prayer. Would you rather that And then you can learn from other people trying the opposite and carrying on. I would advise you to say yes, that you would rather. And if you have some belief and you say, well, maybe these things are true. I just, I don't know. I I have a hard time believing it. Pray and ask that God would help you to believe. Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief should be your prayer. Because God answers those kinds of prayers in the affirmative. He hardened Pharaoh's heart because Pharaoh already had his mind made up, but God hardened Pharaoh's heart in the manner of his choosing at the time of his choosing so that God could display his own power for our benefit. God used Pharaoh as an illustration, and I don't believe that that means it's all figurative. I believe that it literally happened because we don't worship a figurative God. We worship an actual living God, and we need to know that because otherwise We have a form of godliness, but we deny its power. I love Jordan Peterson, for instance. If any of you are Jordan Peterson fans, I love Jordan Peterson. I greatly respect and admire his knowledge, his ability to articulate firm challenges to our time, particularly to the young men, but also the young women of our time. I so much admire and respect Jordan Peterson, but I think he is in that, I think he's in that state of mind where Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. The latter part, maybe he's praying that. I hope that he does. But believing these things are allegorical after a fashion or being unwilling to commit to believing that these things actually happened, we should pray for him in that regard because he's missing out. And so are the people who are listening to him. They're missing out if they suppose, oh, these things couldn't have actually happened. Says who? Says who? Do we want to have a form of godliness and deny its power? Or do we want godliness with contentment? You're already going to get canceled anyways. So if that's what's holding you back, people are going to think I'm ridiculous. People are going to think I'm absurd. 
So what? So what if they do? They're idiots. <laughs> you, you might take it as a badge of honor if they think you're absurd. You don't want them to have a high opinion of you, given their judgment in pretty much everything else. But that is to say, I have some current events items I want to talk about. Speaking of the all too common opinions of people who have been raised up in the way they should not go. And now that they're older, they're not departing from it. We should pray for them. We should call them to repentance. We should call them to belief in Christ. But speaking of those who have been indoctrinated in bad doctrine, I attended an event for Rocky Mountain gun owners, a legislative briefing in Loveland, Colorado, here on Tuesday night with a couple of guys from church. One of them used to be a lobbyist for uh, an insurance company here in the state of Colorado, has also been very involved in politics, ran for public office here a few years back. And he is signed up for email alerts and text alerts, and he got one for RMGO and reached out to me and a couple other guys and said, hey, would you guys be interested in going to this? And I said, yes, please, absolutely. And so three of us from church, we went and listened to Dudley Brown and some others talk about what legislation is up for consideration in the state of Colorado that really does infringe on our gun rights. And insofar as the state of Colorado is looked to, for better or worse, as a kind of leader in the Rocky Mountains, economically powerful, politically influential, exerting its own gravitational pull on the surrounding states like Wyoming and Montana, insofar as Colorado is important to the whole Rocky Mountains region, this legislation being passed here, it's going to ripple out if it's successful. It's going to ripple out to the rest of the Rocky Mountains region and also the rest of the country because people on the coasts, people in flyover country, Midwest and in the South are going to be told, well, this legislation was passed in Colorado and the Coloradan hunters and firearms aficionados, they seem okay with it. So if the Coloradans can suck it up buttercup for the sake of the greater good, then you should too. We need to pass common sense, finger quotes, common sense gun legislation in our area too. So among other things, what I learned at this RMGO get together is that an assault weapons ban is being considered and it might be uh, put forward it might be filed tomorrow. That's a possibility. It might not. It may be a while before it is put forward and there's an attempt to pass it. If it does pass in our Democrat majority House and Senate here in the state of Colorado, what has been communicated is that it will have to be challenged at the Supreme Court. And so also several other pieces of legislation, separate pieces of, of, of uh, legislation, one being expansion of red flag gun confiscation laws that were passed here uh, a few years ago. Another would be increasing the minimum age to purchase a firearm to 21. So that is to say, you can change your gender. You can buy uh, various illicit goods that are not good for your health and which you're probably not going to consume in moderation. You can get married and you can start a family. You can have kids. You can go off into the military and fight against the communist Chinese in World War III here anytime, potentially. But you can't buy a firearm if this legislation passes until you're 21. How about that? You could serve a full 
term of duty in the armed forces and fight and die for your country. But if this law passes, you won't be able to buy a gun until you're 21, which is just bananas. It's a slippery slope. And the gun control folks, they know that it's a slippery slope. What they really, really want to do with the assault weapons ban and banning so-called high-capacity magazines and expanding red flag gun confiscation laws, what they really, really want to do is they want to ban private firearms ownership, except for the people who they agree with. I mean, that's really what it boils down to is they want to push so many radical things and they want to redistribute the wealth and they want to institute communism here in the U.S., but they're a little concerned that if conservative Americans and independent Americans who would not before that have their firearms, they might be able to protect their other rights, like property rights, for instance, like their right to free speech, like their right to assembly, like their right of free association, like their right to privacy, like their freedom of religion. If people in the U.S. are allowed to keep their firearms, they might not be able to institute communism here. That's, I think, the concern for those on the left. And RMGO very much agrees with that. I would agree with that. I'm not an expert on their organization, but you should check out their website because they've got a very informative Bill Watch page, Second Amendment Bill Watch page, that was just updated here uh, last week. Check it out and do consider contacting your elected representatives. Now, something that I found very, very surprising and very disappointing is that we went to this legislative briefing and all of the Republican lawmakers in our area were invited to attend and not one of them came. Not a one of them came. I find that shocking, actually. We have Republicans who, because of open primaries, they don't even have to really be conservative. They don't have to be for your rights. They can appeal to Democrats. They can really actually be, for all intents and purposes, Democrats and their sensibilities. All they really, really, really want is that office. They want that brass ring. They want the glory. They want the credit. They have selfish ambition and vain conceit at the fore of their mind. And if your rights get trampled on, eh, if there's enough people, 51% of people in the state of Colorado want your rights to be trampled on, because that's going to help them feel safe, then it would seem we have Republicans in the legislature who are good with that, so long as they get to keep on being in the legislature. It's profitable. It's flattering for them. That's exactly opposite the way that it ought to be. And again, this is why I say, at some turns here with this podcast, for instance, if I'm not doing something that I think would be good to do, if I'm doing something that I think would be not good to do, all because you may approve or disapprove or it would please you, I take care. It's not to say that it necessarily is wrong. Do what is honorable in the sight of all. That's biblical. Absolutely. Love is not rude. That's biblical. So we have to moderate. But beware when all men speak well of you, Jesus said. For so also their fathers spoke well of the false prophets. Beware. So these two things create a kind of tension for me, and I wish that we had elected representatives in the state of Colorado who are Republicans. I wish we had elected representatives who also were feeling that tension. It doesn't seem so. 
It does not seem so. So I would encourage you, write to your congressman, write to your elected representatives, write to your local government officials to let them know that you're very concerned about the infringement on your rights as an American, as a Coloradan, as a man, as a woman. Because at a certain point, we have to admit that these things are only important that have been written down, these laws and the Constitution itself. These things are only important if they're actually true. If they're actually true that God has created all men equal and endowed them with certain inalienable rights, if that's actually true, then it's true and important because God made it that way. If it's not true, well then, carry on, I suppose, and let them do whatever they're going to do and just live it up. Live it up for as long as the getting is good. Get what you can, can all you get, sit on the can. That's what life is all about. Now, on this point, I want to actually go back to Exodus 13 to 14 for a moment. And I want to speak to the sensibility of some Christians to say, well, didn't you just read about God himself fighting for the children of Israel? Why do we need the Second Amendment? Why do we need to have firearms and to be legally protected in owning firearms privately? Can't we just call the police? Or so what, right? So what if the police don't come in time? Don't we trust God? And I say, it's not an either or. Notice that the children of Israel are in the future. After this fact, they are fighting and they are told to fight. Now, how would it be if they had no arms, they had no weapons, they had no gear whatsoever? If God tells them to fight, then they're, they're supposed to fight. If he tells them to stand back, then they're supposed to stand back. If he tells them to march around the walls of the city seven times and then blow trumpets, then that's what they should do. But there is nothing biblical about surrendering all of your capacity to do meaningful work or to fight. There's nothing biblical about that. In fact, I would say the preponderance of evidence, Old Testament and New, is that it is proper and normal to have weapons, just like it's proper and normal to have tools of other kinds. Weapons are just tools for defending yourself or fighting an enemy if an enemy comes against you. And that is to say that because we live in a fallen world, in the midst of sinful people, because they have sinful natures and it's not just us, sometimes you will have enemies who are going to come against you. And sometimes you'll have predators, people who are depraved, who just want to kill and destroy and rob and torture and enslave and those people definitely exist in the United States of America today, and they also exist all around the world. They always have, since the fall, since people spread out all over the world the way that we have, they are here in this country now, and they are around the world, and there are very powerful countries, like China, for instance. Iran and North Korea are less powerful, but they still have the capacity to do damage and to keep our allies busy. In any event, Russia is having a hard time of it in the Ukraine, it would seem. But Russia still has the capacity to do a lot of damage to Ukrainian cities. We've been seeing that for over a year now. Those cities used to look a lot like American cities. And now they look a lot like piles of rubble. 
because Russia does have enough strength to cause damage. And what is it that we're sending to Ukraine? If you're somebody who supports sending weapons to Ukraine, how would it be if simultaneous to us sending the most advanced weapon systems in world history to the Ukrainians to fight Russia, to fight a Russian invasion, simultaneous to that, we have Democrats here in the U.S. who want you and I to not even be allowed to own modern sporting semi-automatic rifles. They don't even want us to be able to own semi-automatic handguns. They want to create so much red tape, so much sludge is the proper term, given the current paradigm with nudge theory. They want to create so much sludge that you just give up on wanting to buy a firearm. And you just say, I'll take my chances because you're lazy. They're also hoping that if they can throw several bills into law, that they can just wear us down over time. There's a lot of money that they're putting into this push for gun control. They're renewing their efforts. Back in the 90s, there were assault weapons bans. But this is like prohibition, right? It's like prohibition. When alcohol was outlawed in the U.S., it did not mean that there was no more alcohol. It meant that the people who really didn't care about the law so much as they cared about making money or doing what they wanted to do, they kept on producing, transporting, storing, selling, buying alcohol. And that was actually the rise of organized crime in the U.S. Prohibition led to the rise of organized crime in the U.S. because it was profitable and because it was foolish to prohibit what it was that had been attempted in prohibiting alcohol. It was foolish. Now do that with guns. And do you think that all of the guns are just going to magically disappear from private hands, private storage? Do you think it's just going to go that way? No, it's not. It's not. The criminals will still have their firearms, the law-abiding people, the decent, hardworking people who are too busy for this nonsense. They don't have time for it. They're going to be the ones who don't have weapons, which is going to mean that it's open season on them. It's That's what it is. That's what it is. So that's why we need to take it very seriously. And if there's a command from God, if you can point me to book, chapter, verse, where God says, do not own weapons, then I'll take it into consideration. We'll talk about it. I will talk about it on this podcast at whatever length you want and whatever depth you want. But unless you can point me to such a verse, I'm going to say it is just as superficial and weak from an argumentative standpoint to say that Christians just need to trust God and not stand up for our rights. It's just as weak as if you were to say, well, I don't need to go to work this morning. My family needs me to pay the rent and utilities costs and buy groceries and buy clothing and buy school supplies, but I'm just going to trust God. It doesn't work that way. That is not what we are called to. Stop it. Stop being lazy. Stop being so self-indulgent. Moving on. Speaking of educational supplies, Jesse James over at Not To Be published a piece just yesterday. Report, drag queen kicks British 11-year-old out of class for denying 73 genders before lesson on, and I apologize, even just to say this is awkward and uncomfortable, but this is what it is. This is what kids are being taught. For denying 73 genders before lesson on anal sex and artificial penises. Now, this is Britain, okay? This is Great Britain. This is not the U.S., but 
it can absolutely happen here because the same people who are pushing this ideology in Great Britain are also pushing it here. Same mentality, same human nature, same ideology, same larger agenda to destroy the West and to institute global communism. The exact same push. And I don't mean that every drag queen is, every transvestite is ultimately wanting communism. I think that most of them are useful idiots. But the people who are promoting them and insisting, oh, they have to be, right? They have to be free to molest your kids, corrupt your kids. Don't you dare. You know, the only thing transgressive here is if you object to it. Those people are the same folks who want the gun control. They're the same people who want to codify Roe v. Wade here in the U.S. They're the same people who want to spend all of our children's and grandchildren's inheritance to live it up right now. It's immoral. It's ungodly. It's thoroughly wicked. And kudos to this 11-year-old for saying, no, that's not true. That's not correct. Kudos to him. And also, too, I'll just mention, so this was the Isle of Man. There was some pushback, thankfully, a pushback of petition signing and people in the local area saying, this is not okay, right? This is not okay. This needs to not happen. Uh, The Isle of Man, according to Jesse James's post here, his report here, the Isle of Man government has suspended sex education at schools after a drag queen allegedly forced a student to leave class for refuting the concept of 73 genders, according to a new report from The Telegraph. A petition from parents of students attending Queen Elizabeth II High School previously called for an immediate investigation into the curriculum. The petition was addressed to the school's head teacher, Charlotte Clark, and signed by more than 500 people. Quote, we must consider the attendance of a drag queen in class and alienating students clearly confused about the information discussed during this session, wholly inappropriate. The petition reads in part. So that's great, right? It's great that there's a petition that's being signed. And also at the same time, it can absolutely happen here just because it's Great Britain. Don't kid yourself that this is not happening in the U.S. because it absolutely is happening in the U.S. They want to molest your kids. Ultimately, they want to rape your kids. Ultimately, they want to rape everything that you hold near and dear. And the test is, what happens? What do they do? How do they respond when you tell them no? How they respond is to rape your name. They slander you. They abuse you. They try to destroy you because this actually is all about power. It's all about control. It's not about their mental health will be so much better if you just give them what they want and you affirm them or you just keep quiet, keep it to yourself. No. Ultimately, this is about power. And if you are standing between them and power as they see it, they will try to destroy you. And if you don't stop them on this, it's just the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And they cannot be allowed to be in charge. They can't. They just can't. They are thoroughly evil and depraved. They don't know justice. They are of their father, the devil. And this is why we homeschool. Moving on. Speaking of work, also, Joel Abbott at Not To Be posted this one a couple weeks ago. So this is not like new, new, but it's new enough. Two weeks should be recent enough. As industrial accidents pile up around the nation, here's Bloomberg's attempted banger of the day. February 21st, 2023, that's when this post was. And there's a little screenshot of an article in Bloomberg, an opinion piece by Alison Schrager. Men dropping out of the workforce could be progress. After decades of gains in earnings and opportunity, economically empowered women are in a stronger position to support households 
with non-working men? Joel Abbott asks a very proper question. How obtuse can they be? I, <laughs> uh, quite right. Quite right. Here's a quote from the Bloomberg piece. When I think of the working age men, I know who chose not to work. They all have something in common. A woman who earns enough to support them both. One of the big economic mysteries of our time has become why men in the prime age group of 25 to 54 are leaving the labor force. What are they doing instead? Why don't they want to work? How do they support themselves? Those are still largely unanswered questions, but I wondered if some of my personal acquaintances offered a clue. And you know what? You know what I would say it has to do with? It has to do with straight white men in particular being everybody's favorite piñata. Straight white men in particular being forced to go through DEI training at work, even in the oil and gas industry, even with the biggest oil and gas companies, American oil and gas companies in the world. I've seen it. I have been subjected to it. And it's disgusting. Straight white men are tired of being told that they need to apologize. They need to tuck tail. They need to emasculate themselves or else their employer is going to do it for them. You dare to have a spine and to know what you're about and to speak what is true and what is sensible, what it has been for hundreds and thousands of years of human history, recorded human history. You dare to say those kinds of things and you will be escorted from the building. You will not be promoted. You will not get that raise this year. You will get called into the principal's office, so to speak, because we've infantilized the American male. Gee, I don't know. Why don't men want to work? <laughs> Who wouldn't want to work in that kind of an environment? Actually, here's the thing. Here's the funny thing. The irony of ironies with a lot of the harassment training that HR departments push on American companies anymore, they understand exactly what they're doing. They know exactly what they're doing. For all that they warn about how you can't harass this people group and you can't harass this people group and you can't discriminate against this people group and you can't harass these folks and you can't disagree with these people, you can't criticize these people, you can't get into a disagreement with that guy or that gal or that guy who thinks he's a gal or that gal who thinks she's a guy, you can't contradict them you can't even refuse to affirm them increasingly because that would be creating a hostile work environment. And do you know what the inverse is? That to tell straight white men in particular that we've had it pretty good for a long time and now it's time that we take our lumps for past generations, that creates a hostile work environment. The folks pushing this stuff know exactly what they're doing. They're trying to use psychological torture. They're trying to make us conform to their agenda and their ambitions, and they are of their father, the devil. Racism is an ugly, evil, horrible thing, and I disagree with it. CRT is racism, so I disagree with it, right? To be consistent, I have to disagree with it, just like I disagree with the more traditional and well-recognized kinds of racism. Jim Crow, awful. Ugly, horrible, ungodly, wicked. No excuse for it biblically at all. On the short list of things that the Lord hates is uneven, unequal weights and measures. But that is to say, this DEI business is unequal weights and measures. It is not of God. It is not biblical. It is not godly. It is not wise. It is satanic. 
it's communistic, which is, I, I suppose, in some sense, redundant. I repeat myself. But this is a very, very bad idea to encourage men or to celebrate as men check out of the work, check out of the workforce so that their women, their wives, their girlfriends, their fiancés, their whatever will provide for them. This is an absolute train wreck and not a good thing at all. It's not progress. This is regress. It's not progress. This is a sign of a culture in decline, in decay that is committing sipiku, Harry carry. It's suicidal culturally, civilizationally. Now I'll tell you on a brighter note, what is not, what is not <laughs> uh, so bad. And that is some of what I am seeing in the way of clips from a podcast, a dating podcast from California. They're calling this whatever. That's what it's called. It's the whatever podcast. There's some objectionable content in here. There's some some wording and language that's uncomfortable and unpleasant. So I, I warn you now, but then I'm also going to play some of this anyways, because if you haven't heard it, if you haven't seen it, and you are an adult, you need to recognize that this is what's going on. This is the conversation that's being had. If we don't know what's going on, how are we going to respond to it? How are we, how are we going to protect ourselves and our loved ones? So I'm going to play a clip here or two or three, perhaps from this podcast, whatever. Take a listen. I love men. Like, I think men are the coolest, but I don't need them to survive. You do actually need men to survive. And here's why. Everything that you see around you was built and created and maintained by men. Okay. Everything. The infrastructure in this country, in every single country in the world, is built, created, and maintained by good, honest, hardworking men that just want to provide for their family. Everything, the roads you drive on, the buildings you live in. Would you describe yourself as a feminist? Yes. Do you believe in gender equality? Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> okay, so how do you reconcile believing in gender equality, but also holding men to their traditional gender roles of paying for the first date? Well, I'm, I'm just saying that's my personal view. A woman can, being a feminist is just doing whatever you want to do. And not being bashed by society for that and uh, obviously like like um standing up for like women's like rights and stuff like that but when it i don't know i just feel like this question's really dense my question is if you believe in gender equality don't you think you ought to split the bill on the first date um no because my main concern with gender equality is through like yes in society like fixing that and through like the system but yeah i don't oh my god chase would you rather smash the hottest trans woman in the world or the oh oldest woman in the world man. honestly bro old, the oldest woman in the world because then i wouldn't be gay what <laughs> you really just want me to oh, just whip uh, you a fucking uh, new uh, one i swear uh, to are you like uh, uh, 
What? Chase, yeah. how dare you be transphobic? Yes, actually, what the fuck do you mean? Yes, that was because so if I had sex with a trans woman, I'd be having sex with a biological man, and I don't want to do that. The question is, that's not what you said, though. That's fine. Because I'd be say. gay if I had sex that's with a biological gay. man. That's not gay. That's gay. And I don't even care if you're doing this for like whatever, but like shut the fuck up. Actually, I'm, I'm doing you look it like you have a little bit of Why don't you? Why don't you make me shut the fuck up? Because I have an opinion that differs from yours. I mean, that's really hateful, but she's bro. Not, she's not. It would technically be homosexual. A trans woman is a biological man. Sue me. It's true. Fuck, dude. That's mean. I, I also oh, gotta go. It's I gotta not go. fucked that's up. Right. It's real. That's it's his. true. Okay, if you guys want to respect factual. gender identities, that's his, though. That's his sexuality. You want, I'm not allowed to say that. I'm not allowed to say that. Yes. Yeah, you know, you know what God said? It said He made the man and women. He made the man and woman. I just told you I'm not gay. I'll pass on that. Thanks, though. <laughs> Who knew that stating biological facts would make people walk off the show? And cut. That's enough. Um, I'm not going to endorse this dating show, this dating podcast. Not, not, not doing it. I'm not listening to it. But I do find it interesting. Thank you to Not The Bee for posting it. Harambe over at Not The Bee. Not his real name. Not actually a sign language gorilla. I think. I assume. That would be remarkable uh, if it were the real Harambe. But thank you to Not The Bee for posting that in all its detail. Because as jarring as that is, it should be jarring. It should be jarring. And... That's what it is. That's the sensibility is walk away from the conversation. If you can't get the other person to be quiet, they're stating some very, very basic facts, but those basic facts are offensive because these young ladies have been brainwashed. I guarantee you they went to public school. I guarantee you that they were not homeschooled. I guarantee it. And this is why we homeschool. Speaking of children, speaking of education and adults and parenting. Daniel Payne over at Not To Be. I've just had all these Not To Be tabs open on my browser, so I had to clear the queue by <laughs> recording this podcast, and I got to get this off my chest and make you aware so that I can move on. Just gots to. Daniel Payne, February 23rd, posts a homily on the fall of Western civilization. Read this Chick-fil-A's letter to parents explaining why unsupervised kids under 16. Yes, you heard that right. Under 16. Let me repeat this. Under 16 are no longer allowed. Megan Brock has some tweets, which thank you to Daniel Payne. I can read because he embedded these tweets in the post at not to be. I can't follow the link through because I'm still not on Twitter. Elon Musk, if you're listening, help a guy out. Still not on Twitter. All I said was, with all due respect, at Chris Jolly Hale, what a retarded thing to say. And it was a retarded thing to say. This is retarding the maintenance and growth of Western civilization that Chris Jolly Hale from Tennessee called for the resignation or removal and replacement of Marsha Blackburn, uh, Marsha Blackburn rather, for asking Katanji Brown Jackson to define what a woman is when she was Biden's Supreme Court nominee. 
Megan Brock tweets out, your <clears throat> typo here. It happens. Happens to the best of us. Your no, a culture is in serious decline when a local Chick-fil-A has to beg parents to require their children to act in a way that is compatible with the basic decency required in a functioning society. This reads like a homily on the fall of Western civilization. And then she's got the letter screenshotted because there's a character limit on Twitter, of course. And then she's got a follow-up tweet. In previous generations, 16-year-olds lied about their age so they could go to war on behalf of their country. Now they can't be trusted to eat at a Chick-fil-A without an adult. How far we have fallen. Now, a couple things. There's so many There's so many things that could be said about this letter, about this open letter, about this topic, about this open secret that there's something really, really broken about young people. And let me just start off by saying it's not the young people's fault, first and foremost. I mean, they're responsible for their behavior. They're responsible for their actions when they're acting the fool, when they're being little deviants, when they're being disrespectful and damaging people's property when they're being messy and rude and they're cursing in the establishment, which is part of what the Chick-fil-A letter explains as far as a reason. Uh, They're using loud and crass and explicit language in the restaurant. It's a family restaurant, family-friendly restaurant where that's not tolerated. You have to say this is not tolerated. You have to. You have to. If we don't tolerate organizations, institutions, places of business saying this is not going to be tolerated here, you will get more of the same. What you tolerate is what will continue. What you permit is what will continue. This cannot continue. But that is to say, it is the fault of the adults. It is the fault of the older generations who have been in political power, who have had institutional power in the mainstream of American society. And yes, even in the church, it is the fault of the adults who have raised these children, both parents and grandparents, who have not corrected these behaviors, who have not instituted discipline, who have not trained up these children in the way that they should go so that when they're older, they won't depart from it. They've trained them up in the way that they shouldn't go. And unless there's a course correction, this generation is cruising for a bruising. It really is. Now, an interesting thing, going back to the topic of generations by Neil Howe and William Strauss, their generational theory, generational model for looking at history and projecting forward what will happen in the coming decades, there have been previous generations who similarly have been complained about by their parents' generation, their grandparents' generation, that they were unruly, out of control, disrespectful, rude, lawless, roving around without supervision, getting into trouble. There have been previous generations in decades and centuries past of American history. So it's not as though this is totally unprecedented, but that is to say Take a look back at those previous generations and what the outcome was for that generation that was this way, that was acting this way. And soberly consider the young people in your sphere of influence, even if they're not your children, if they're somebody else's children, but you know that somebody else and you can talk to that somebody else and you can encourage them to discipline their child when their child is being disrespectful, irreverent, uncouth lawless. It's very, very important to the well-being of these young people that they be told, no, you can't act that way. You can't talk that way. And if you're going to say you can't act that way, you can't talk that way, there have to be consequences that are meaningful and that are attention getting for those young people 
if they continue on. You know, I was just having a conversation with a public school teacher, high school public te- public school teacher last night. Teaches in a local public high school. He has for years and years. And he told me that he so enjoys, so appreciates helping out with the middle school youth on Wednesday nights at our church, Summit View Community Church in Greeley Evans. He so enjoys that because you've got these middle schoolers who are just so sweet. The high schoolers where he teaches are not sweet at all. They're crass. They're rude. They curse all the time. They have bad attitudes. And he tries to just ignore it. And I'm not faulting him. I'm not trying to criticize him. I'm just reporting the facts. Just the facts, ma'am. Like Sergeant Friday from Dragnet. He says he tries to just overlook the bad language and the constant profanity from these kids. Because if you correct it, if you say, hey, you can't talk that way in my class, they just do it more. Which is to say that they are thoroughly rebellious and they don't recognize authority. Now, you're going to say, well, but Garrett, you're always talking about how you know, we should disobey the authorities. And so maybe you're, maybe you're the problem. You're the, you're the reason why these kids are turning out this way. And I say, look at my kids. My kids are not that way. Now, have you ever heard the saying, pick your battles? For one, it means that sometimes you do need to pick some battles. <laughs> you have to. But also at the same time, how you pick the battles that you pick and how you fight those battles is absolutely the key to whether you're going to win the battles and whether you're going to have a good outcome or whether you're going to get destroyed. That is a timeless maxim of strategy. Not just that you pick the right battles, but that you fight those right battles in the right way at the right time and that you capitalize on success when you have success. This is part of why we homeschool, ladies and gentlemen, unapologetically. I'm not going to be shy about it. This is why we homeschool, and this is why I would encourage you to do so as well. And more to the point, the fact that these young people are unaccustomed to being told no with the certain behaviors that they are exhibiting and embracing routinely, but they are telling adults no, and they will, right? As they get older, they will tell their peers and their children and the other adults in society no, just like that gal in the dating podcast was telling, no, no, you can't say that. How dare you? Oh, that's hateful. I'm, I'm not going to stick around for that. Don't say that. You can't say that. She's cussing at him on a podcast. No self-respect, no respect for him, no respect for the other people in the room, no respect for the audience whatsoever, because what she's been told to say yes to, what she's been told to say no to is godless. It's not just lawless from a human institutions standpoint. It's lawless from a fear of God standpoint. These kids don't know right from wrong. And that's because the public schools have taught them that wrong is right and right is wrong. They have been trained up in the exact opposite of the way that they should go. And when they're older, they won't depart from it unless parents get engaged, unless the adults in their lives get engaged and come alongside and say, you can't do that. And here's why, right? What's going on here? Unless there are consequences also, there have to be meaningful consequences. If you're not prepared to, if you're too afraid to deliver meaningful consequences because the meaningful consequences that will be visited on you by other people for saying no, and I mean no, would actually punish you worse than this kid would be disciplined for misbehaving, we have all the necessary ingredients for implosion. And it will get worse before it gets better because there's a whole lot of adults 
in American society right now who would hate me for saying what I just said. Or at best, at best, they would say, well, you're right, but what can I do about it? This is just a fact. It's a fact. It's, it's repetitious. It's cyclical. It happens every now and then that cultures implode and commit suicide, that institutions and organizations refuse to do what this Chick-fil-A is doing. And kudos to this Chick-fil-A. This Chick-fil-A writing a letter and explaining the reasons, it hurts to read it. It hurts even to just peruse it. I'll put a link in the episode description for this podcast. You can check it out and read it in full for yourself. But volume, they are loud and their conversation often contains a lot of explicit language. We are a family-friendly restaurant where this is not tolerated. Kudos. Kudos to you. Also, shame on the parents of these kids that they do tolerate this. And shame on them even harder if they would insist that everybody in society tolerate this or else. Mistreatment of property. Food and trash are often thrown around and left on the tables, chairs, and on the floor. Tables and restrooms are vandalized. Decorations are stolen. Disrespect of employees. Employees are laughed at, made fun of, and treated rudely. Employees are cursed at and ignored when they ask the children and teens to either change their behavior or leave. Unsafe behaviors also occur walking through the parking lot and drive through lanes. As you can imagine, this is not a pleasant experience. And so this Chick-fil-A, the manager here, taking a lot of courage, ginning up a lot of courage to write this. You can tell it pains them even to write this. It also pains them even more that they need to write this. Anybody who would say, wow, that's, that's a great way to lose customers. You know what's a great way to lose customers? Your place being burned down because it's absolute anarchy. And going back to just a minute ago, you say, well, Garrett, maybe you're the problem because you're constantly telling us we shouldn't obey the governing authorities. What's, you know, what's this about you, you thinking that kids under 21, which is, by the way, ridiculous. Like We're just going to extend out childhood indefinitely because these kids keep on failing to grow up and mature because they weren't raised properly. Or the ones that were, we don't want them having guns because they might defend themselves against the, the lawless deviants uh, who are their peers. But pick your battles means you have to pick some. Also, too, and this happened when I was chairman of the safety committee. I am very interested in safety, by the way. But when I was chairman of the safety committee at a previous employer in the year 2020 and COVID hit and all the lockdowns and mandate talk and all the rest was getting pushed on us as well, social distancing and don't come to work or you got to wear these masks if we're going to have training, all day training, you're going to have to wear these masks. I said, this is ridiculous. And I tried. I tried to leverage as much of my influence as I possibly could, and it cost me. It made enemies for me. But I said, here's the problem. If you push the masks and the social distancing, even though the science does not support these measures being necessary, if you push it anyways and you refuse to listen when your workforce is saying this is creating an unsafe environment, actually, ironically, you will create a environment in which your employees don't want to pay attention to any of your actually important, actually proven, actually well-founded safety rules and regulations and policies. You're going to burn these workers out, employees, contractors, the whole lot, on being ever told, here's the proper way to do this thing. You will. 
And that happened on the macro across American society. These kids were locked down, masked up, many of them vaccinated, and they've been told, you can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. You can't get together with your friends. But what you can do, you can change your gender and tell us your preferred pronouns and get an abortion. And of course, they're acting the way that they are. Of course they are. Because the adults in their lives failed to protect them and actually actively participated in their being abused and oppressed for the past several years. The adults in their life have actively participated and were not actively participating passively sat back because they were more afraid of losing their job or their peers not liking them anymore. They were more afraid of what it was going to cost them than they were caring about these kids. And that has made these kids extraordinarily cynical. And of course it did. Of course it did. Just like these kids need to be told no, the moral busybodies who are actually terribly immoral, they also need to be told no. And there has to be an or else. There have to be consequences. We say no, and they do it even harder. And then we say, no, I meant no. And those consequences, I think, are going to be deferred, but they're not avoidable at this point. And that is part of the judgment that we're under as a people, unless we turn back to God, unless we seek God's face. Even so, there are going to be consequences if we do, because not everybody is going to seek God's face. But better to limit the damage, better to be salt and light, even if there's a whole lot of hate that that is replied to with. Moving on, a happier story, right? A happier story from John Rigolizzo, published yesterday at the Daily Wire. Have 10 kids, pay no property taxes. Texas state lawmakers bill would give tax breaks to big families. I'll put a link in the episode description and you might be thinking to yourself, hmm, wow, uh, I wonder if I should move to Texas. <laughs> If you're in my boat, if you're in my shoes, I'm looking at this like, hmm, interesting. (laughs) A Texas lawmaker introduced a bill on Tuesday to give tax breaks to healthy families with multiple children. Republican Texas State Representative Brian Slayton introduced House Bill 2889 Tuesday. The bill would give property tax deductions to married families with four or more children. If a family has 10 or more children, they would pay no property taxes under the law. Slayton said that the bill would help incentivize Texans to get married, stay married, and raise large and healthy families. And of course it will. Of course it will. And it should be passed. And this is a great idea. And you should do it everywhere. Do it across the country. Because otherwise, we're, we're in trouble demographically. In order to qualify for the tax break, <clears throat> the child must be the son or daughter of two married parents born after the parents are married. If the child is adopted, he or she must be adopted after the parents are married. A qualifying child can also be the stepchild of one of the parents, but only if the only, only if <clears throat> this is interesting, only if the other parent is a widow or widower. Also, in order to qualify, the couple must be legally married and never have been divorced. Couples must provide documentation of both their marriage and birth or adoption certificates in order to claim the credit. According to the bill, qualifying couples are eligible for a 10% tax deduction in their property taxes. Couples with four or more children are eligible for even greater tax deductions. That is to say, couples with six children get a 60% reduction. Couples with seven, 70%. With eight, 80%. Nine, 90%. Ten or more, 100%. No taxes, property-wise. Great idea. This is a fantastic 
fantastic idea. And the fact that anybody is putting this kind of legislation forward makes me very optimistic that we could seek God's face and we could repent as a people. And it's not to say it's going to be without cost, but you have to be willing to pick your battles. And that means that you actually do pick some battles. This is a good battle to pick. This is a good battle to pick. You want kids who are going to be well-adjusted, mannerly, responsible, respectful of the people around them, thoughtful, intelligent, attentive, hardworking. They really, really do need two parents in the mix. They really do. They need a mom and they need a dad. And actually, interestingly enough, for all of the propaganda that has circulated for so long, I I would say thanks to the boomers in particular, about not wanting to have so many kids because, well, then how are you going to take care of them all? How are you going to provide for them all? How are you going to give them all the love and attention that they need? Here is my answer to that. When I know that my peer or close to my peer, somebody in my generation, has just one kid and they are giving that child every absolute privilege and advantage They're going to go to the best school. They're going to wear the best clothes. They're going to have the latest toys. They're going to have all the video games. They're going to go do their vacations together as a family all the time. And this kid always gets ice cream and he always gets exactly what he wants all the time, no matter what. Do you know what I see? I see that kid being set up to be an absolute spoiled brat. That's what I see. Is that really providing for that child? Because sometimes nothing feels like success. You give that child everything he ever wants or she ever wants. And you might actually be setting that child up for a very bad end. Are you actually training up that child in the way that they should go? Are you actually? That they always have your attention and they don't, right? They don't. It's disingenuous. Oh, we only have one so that we can give this child all the attention that they want. Should they always have all the attention that they want? If they had a sibling, they would have to learn how to wait their turn and consider the other person. And they would sometimes bicker and fight over who's going to play with the toy this time or what the rules of this game are, or was that fair? Or you're not helping clean our room that we share, but that's just it. Those are opportunities to grow and develop character. And if you're just saying, well, I don't want my kid to have to go through all of that. Well, then you are going to have a stunted child where character is concerned. You just are. And if all their peers are only children, and your child is an only child, you're going to say, well, okay, but they have they have friends. Yeah, and all their friends are just as spoiled as they are. What What is that? Right? What is that? I'm not saying my wife and I do it all perfectly, but I was just paid a compliment last night, the same public school teacher that I was talking with. I didn't go digging for these compliments. I wasn't asking for them. I wasn't trying to elicit them. I didn't bring up the topic. I, I didn't. But I walk in. Last night to pick up my boys after youth group and this public school, high school teacher, he's cleaning up and I come over. I say, hey, how did it go tonight? How's your week? He says, good. Yeah, it went really good. I was just talking to your oldest son, Josiah. And man, I love talking to him. I feel like I'm talking to you. That's literally what my friend, the public school teacher told me. I feel like I'm talking to you. Man, he's just, he's such a cool kid. He is so insightful. He's very conversational, very respectful, very serious, but man, it's just, yeah, he's just, he's such a good kid. The Lord is going to use him in really big ways, I think. 
really important ways. Yeah, you you done good. And I hear that and I think he's the oldest. He doesn't always have a good attitude. Let me just be very clear. But that's just it. Nobody does. No, I mean, except for God, God always has a good attitude. The rest of us, we got to do something when we have a bad attitude. We got to correct it. We got to adjust it. We've got to meditate on what is true and what is good. Sometimes we've got to repent and we've got to apologize. Sometimes we've got to do what we're supposed to do anyways, even if we don't feel like it. And that also develops good character. James in the New Testament says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Consider it pure joy. And my oldest son, the oldest of eight so far, maybe that's all we have, or maybe we moved to Texas and we have another couple so we don't have to pay any property taxes. I don't know. I'm not saying we will. I'm just saying we could. We could. <laughs> it's an idea, especially if Colorado wants to ban so-called assault weapons. Texas looks better and better if that's how you want to be, Colorado. But I look at this, I look at this situation where kids can't be trusted at 16 to eat in at Chick-fil-A without parents. And I guarantee you that they are all public school kids. I guarantee it. And I don't blame the teachers first and foremost. Some teachers, absolutely I do. And they should be run out of town on a rail. There's some great public school teachers. There really are. My grandmother was a public school teacher, 30 years in Milton, Florida. Excellent educator. My great, great, great grandfather led the school teachers regiment, as it was called, at the Battle of Gettysburg, 151st Pennsylvania Volunteers. I've got school teachers in my family tree. But here's the thing. The system that we have, read John Taylor Gatto, the system that we have is not actually education. It's obedience training. And it's perhaps counterintuitive when we see how disobedient these kids are. They're disobedient to their parents. They're disobedient to most of the adults in broader society. They are obedient to what they've been trained up in that they were supposed to believe about right and wrong. They are obedient to that. Make no mistake. And this is why we homeschool. I look at this, have 10 kids, pay no property taxes. And I think we need more of that. Especially if a lot of my peers are just going to say, well, we don't feel like getting married. We don't feel like getting married. We don't feel like having kids. If we do have kids, we're going to have one or two. If you read Polybius, ancient Greek historian, born a Greek, but a Roman citizen, he writes the histories to explain how it is, how it came to be that Greece was conquered by Rome, even though the Romans regard the Greeks as being very inspirational, very sophisticated to a point, right? Maybe similar to Americans and British. There are plenty of red-blooded Americans. If the opportunity presented itself and Britain got bad enough, uh, we might invade Britain and just take it over. Now, Brexit didn't really work out. And you guys have lost your minds over there letting trans folk push 11-year-olds out of your classrooms. But even if that happened, right? This is, I'm not saying any Brits out there don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the United States of America is planning to invade your country. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying if we did, that's all. That's, that's all. You know, pick your battles. That's not a battle I see us picking. But I'm just trying to make an analogy to the Greeks and the Romans. I think you could say a very similar thing culturally transpired when Rome conquered the Greek city-states because Greece had given up. 
the Greek city-states, the Greek men in particular, the young Greek men, had given up on getting married, having children, raising those children. They were all about themselves. They were effeminate, which is to say they were not manly, luxurious, self-indulgent, weak. And Rome was manly and assertive and confident, and it won, and it conquered. And there's Polybius trying to explain what happened, what just happened, for his own sake, for the sake of his countrymen, and for the sake of the Romans, all of the above. And so he writes the histories. And when he writes the histories, what he says is, basically, where the Greeks were at is exactly what we're seeing here in the United States, thanks to the public education system. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but you go read it. Go read Polybius. I'll wait. Come back. Tell me what you think. Tell me if you think I'm wrong. And actually, I think that's the idea. I think that the folks who are at the very tippy top, who are pushing this and requiring this, they know exactly what they're doing. In many cases at the tippy top, they're weakening American society in the interest of global social justice or cultural Marxism. Plenty don't. Plenty wouldn't believe that that's what they're doing, but that is what they're doing. And I see this Texas bill and I think that has staying power. That is a good battle to pick and to fight. And moving on, before we completely run out of time here, you've heard me in the past couple of episodes complain quite a lot about the baby boomers generation. And I suspect I'm going to keep on complaining about the baby boomers generation. I want to be respectful. They are my elders. They're not all bad. By that, I mean there are really decent, upstanding baby boomers. But in terms of a generational archetype, there are some major problems that have been caused and passed down to my generation by the boomers. And when I say passed down, I mean we're suffering with them, but the boomers are stubbornly clinging to power institutionally, organizationally in many cases, politically in most cases. As such, we have to reckon with what kind of a problem they have created here in the U.S. R.R. Reno, Rusty Reno, as some call him, writes, Cursed by the Boomers over at First Things. And I'll put a link to this in the episode description for this podcast. But I'm going to read just a little bit, just a couple of selections here. He starts off, What's wrong with America? There's a two-word answer, baby boomers. It's more complicated than that, of course. No generation exists in a vacuum. Baby boomers may praise themselves as revolutionary and transformative, but as a member of that bulging cohort born between 1946 and 1964, I can attest that we did not so much rebel against our parents as insist on their principles and criticize their compromises. The upshot was an intense and often self-congratulatory moralism. Captive to this moralism, baby boomers have been unable to provide sound leadership. With the exception of Jimmy Carter, who was at the time a midshipman at the Naval Academy, every president from Dwight Eisenhower to the first George Bush had served in active duty during World War II. From JFK to the first Bush, these men were members of what's known as the greatest generation, born in the early decades of the 20th century. They reached adulthood during the Great Depression and World War II, years of great trial in our nation's history. For all the braggadocio 
implicit in the epithet The Greatest Generation, the leading figures of this cohort were not cocksure, but confident. Their youthful experiences gave them a strong sense of how precarious peace and prosperity are. They also knew that life often involves hard choices and painful compromises. This truth is especially evident in times of war, when feudal measures and great waste of life and resources are plain to see. Now, let's skip down a paragraph. According to the ancient Greeks, Reno writes, Tragedy arises because heroic action always comes at a cost. The best and most honorable sentiments catapult us into impossible situations. Niebuhr, that would be Reinhold Niebuhr, adapts this view to a Christian perspective. He observes that moral idealism, though pristine in theory, disarms us in the face of human sinfulness and the persistence of evil. In the service of grand ambitions to end all wars or ensure equity, we are tempted to deny reality. As a consequence, at best, we fail to do what good can actually be done. Niebuhr opposed the sentimental pacifism that was influential in many circles during the 1930s. At worst, our utopian ambitions underwrite unspeakable cruelties, which we baptize as expressions of our highest ideals. So what do we have here, right? What we have is a contrast between moralism on the one hand and realism on the other hand. And you might say, well, Garrett, you talk about morals all the time. And I say, I also played that clip for you from the dating podcast without bleeping out the bleeps. The whatever podcast, they didn't bleep out the bleeps. I also, you might remember, when I read Genesis, I'm not skipping over the parts that would be left on the cutting room floor in a VeggieTales adaptation of Genesis. I read through those parts and I actually drew attention. And I said, all scripture is breathed out by God. And that includes these passages so that we would know that these things happen and that this is what sinful man is capable of. In reading through Exodus, I'm not skipping over the part where the firstborn of every Egyptian house is dead in the night when the angel of death passes over. I didn't skip over those parts because I am not, first and foremost, endeavoring to be moralistic because being moralistic is not the same thing as being moral. Actually, to Reno's point, and I quote, at worst, our utopian ambitions underwrite unspeakable cruelties, which we baptize as expressions of our highest ideals. Which is to say, if you do nothing and let it all fall apart so that you can then stand in the rubble and say, oh, woe is me, I'm such a martyr. But you could have done something. You are not a victim. You are something of a villain here. You're negligent. I mean, how would it be? Let's take, let's talk about Texas again for a moment. Remember that school shooting that happened in Texas several months ago? And do you remember how the police showed up and they waited outside? And not only did they wait outside, they also kept parents who showed up from going into the building. As shots were being fired, the police were holding everybody back and waiting for what? Waiting for what? Waiting for a worse tragedy before they were going to intervene? Waiting until the mass shooter had finished his work, murdering every kid and teacher in the building? Waiting for what? What were they waiting for? Until it was safe for them? Yes. But if there's a generation that has said, oh, we're going to do these great, wonderful, fantastic things, and if it doesn't turn out right, well, then you just need to learn to suffer well. But they're not willing to correct. They joke about it. They laugh it off. They say, oh, well, yeah. 
Yeah, nobody's perfect. <laughs> you should learn to forgive better. But then they don't actually correct. They have no intention of correcting. They're not even sorry. They're not even apologizing. They're stubbornly insistent that, no, oh, this is, this is going to be good in the end. We're oppressing you for your own good, as C.S. Lewis would write. It does bear mentioning C.S. Lewis's quote, by the way. Born 1898, passed from this life 1963, British writer, Anglican lay theologian, author of Mere Christianity, The Screwtape Letters, The Four Loves, The Great Divorce, The Chronicles of Narnia. He wrote this. Of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. They do so with the approval of their own conscience. See also Al Gore Jr. at his prophetic, evangelistic mission to combat climate change, no matter the human cost, all the while claiming that this is for our own good and we're just too stupid to know it. Or corrupt, take your pick, of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. And let's go back to Exodus 13 and 14. The crossing of the Red Sea. Before God brings them through the Red Sea, what do the people of Israel say to Moses? What do they say? What is their response? Not a vote of confidence, if you remember. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? In other words, they would rather be slaves if it's either slavery or death. But that's why I say, I keep on saying, the or else is very, very important. The or else matters very much. If the or else is slavery or death, but God bids us to freedom and to the promised land, then actually isn't the or else either slavery and disobedience to God to go back to Egypt when he's calling you out of Egypt, he's brought you out of Egypt by his own mighty right hand, or obedience and as Moses says, as Moses says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. Yahweh will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. In other words, the only thing you need to do right now is be quiet. Stop talking. Watch. If that's the or else, either return to Egypt and live out the rest of your days in slavery, or watch God work wonders to save his people. That's a very, very different counting of costs. That's a very different cost-benefit analysis. That's the kind of cost-benefit analysis that we need to be making. Yahweh will fight for you. Maybe he will fight for us. Are we his people? Do we doubt whether we are his people? Do we not want him to fight for us? Do we not pray for that? Do we not hope for that? If not, why not? Shouldn't we be expectant that he will deliver his people? Also, too, whatever he tells Moses to tell the people of Israel to do, that they do, it says. Which is to say that sometimes God says, just be quiet and watch. And sometimes God says, tell Israel to do this. And there, too, there's a kind of obedience training. 
It's not just Pharaoh who wants to be obeyed. More to the point, it's God who wants to be obeyed. Let my people go so that they may serve me in the wilderness. That freedom is to the end of loving God and obeying him and keeping his commandments and trusting him and serving him. That's the point. That's the point of the freedom. And that's why we shouldn't count it a light thing when ours is taken away or when we see others who are being led away to the slaughter. God knows we could have said something. God knows we could have spoken up. We could have objected. And he will not hold us guiltless if we refuse to. If we say, well, we didn't know. We had no idea that that was happening. No, no, he knows better. We know better. Don't pretend. You got to serve somebody. Choose this day whom you will serve. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. Before I do, a quick word. This episode will not be subscriber only. And so you may have noticed yesterday or even today, if you scroll through my 570 episodes of this podcast, that some of them are going to be showing a lock instead of a play button. This is because I noticed a new feature on Anchor FM where I host my podcast where I can turn on subscriptions and I can make certain episodes, certain content, subscriber only. And so here's what I did. I turned it on and I'm not asking for much, but I do want to know how many people that listen care enough about this content, assign enough value to this content to pay 99 cents a month for access to all of it. If nobody does, well then, That is instructive to me and informative and perhaps corrective after a fashion. But if I can see how many care enough to subscribe for 99 cents a month, then I think it will be encouraging to me. To date, I have never charged a single red cent for the content that I'm putting out. With the exception of the book that I wrote, that I published And this is why we homeschool. I've never charged for any of my podcast content. Almost 600 episodes in. Lots of other content producers, lots of other podcasters do charge for some of their content. And I'm going to as well. Because I don't want you to get the impression that I am insecure about the value I am delivering. It's not free because there is no value in it. I know that. I want everyone who listens to this podcast to know that. And if I know moving forward, okay, there were this many listens on the typical podcast episode. And now all of a sudden there's only five, six, 10, 20, 30, a hundred people who are willing to pay 99 cents a month to listen to my podcast. Okay. Well then that is what it is. It doesn't mean I stop podcasting just to be clear. And not all of my episodes moving forward are going to be behind that 99 cents subscription. But my most popular episodes are now. 192 are now subscriber only. And that, I think, accomplishes a couple of things, which I want to explain briefly. One thing it accomplishes is that those most popular episodes, perhaps sometimes the most controversial, can't just be fished by people who hate me and want to destroy me and destroy people like me. They can't just be fished for things to try and cancel me with. 
unless they want to pay. I mean, if they want to, you want to fish, go ahead and fish, right? You can fish in the free content. You can fish even in the subscriber only content, but you're going to have to pay for it, right? You, you, you got to pay to fish. <laughs> At the same time too, I think that those who do listen and they do really value that content will have more of a sense of stake and personal investment. Studies have shown with marketing that if you offer something for absolute free, the people that you are giving it to will think that it has less value than if you put even a small price on it. It's weird. It's weird that that is the way that it works. But just like everything is worth what the buyer is willing to pay for it, in some sense, everything is worth what the seller is willing to sell it for. If nobody's interested in buying at 99 cents a month, well, then that's a statement. If lots of people are, well, cool. That's great because there are costs associated with podcasting. That's another thing. I pay for this and that, web hosting, Canva. I do buy equipment from time to time. I've never asked that people subscribe before, but I'm going to try it and let's see what happens. If I didn't, I would be not out of fear and insecurity, and I don't want to live that way. So we'll see. We'll see. We'll see what happens. (laughs) Like I said, I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.